0: This episode of the Two Fit Crazies in a Microphone podcast is brought to you by TFC Productions.
1: Christine, what's the TFC stand for? Two Fit Crazies. Two Fit Crazy Productions? Yeah. Yeah, we produce in podcasts. So, um, you know, people always come up to us uh, and ask us how we can help them or, you know, what we can do. How did you get started in podcasting? What do I need? This and that. We got Let us covered. help you. Let got- us consult with you. We'll walk you through every step. Got you covered. And then from there, if you feel like recording and sending us the information, we'll produce it, we'll package it, we'll send it back to you nice with a bow on it, and uh, you just upload it yourself. we'll Uh, give you all those marketing tools and everything you need to do in the meantime. That's right. From the leaders in podcasting 101.
0: TFC Productions. So we're also brought to you by ContiFit.com, which is your virtual online fitness And wellness, you name it, you need it, we're here for you. And uh, make sure, check out the Let's Face It Together Facial Fitness and Rehabilitation Program. Working with special populations
1: around the world. Get virtually certified today. Don't miss out. Also brought to you by High Five Health and Fitness. We've got virtual online health coaching uh, sessions with me, uh, my company, High Five Health and Fitness. Uh, All the information, highfivehealthandfitness.com.
0: It is Christine Conti. And I'm Brian Prendergast. And we are two fit crazies. We are where it's
1: at. Conti's on a roll this today, this morning, this yeah. afternoon, whatever we're at right we, now.
0: We're somewhere between now and then. <laughs> and you know what? Today we are talking about some pretty awesome stuff. Doctor Glenn Livingston, he likes to be called Glenn. Yes. Is a clinical psychologist joining us from Florida and he is he specializes with um binge eating or any sort of eating disorders he has a book and he is fascinating because he has really interesting theories about the psychology behind you know the addiction of food and his personal story is so fantastic
1: it's one that yeah i mean you have to hear it to believe it and um you know and and his strategies that came from mm-hmm. that story Uh, For helping people, helping himself first and foremost, Uh, you know, developing the uh, the technique and the strategy and the character uh, Mm -hmm. to kind of uh, um, you know help him uh, or understand himself a little bit better. Uh, Fascinating stuff.
0: And he is going to talk about. I'm going to little little spoiler. He's going to talk about his addiction with chocolate, actually, and. You know, some of you are going to sit back and be like, chocolate, like, how could you be addicted to that? That's, you could be addicted to anything. 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 Do you ever right. see those shows where the people are addicted to eating, like, deodorant and whatnot? <laughs> no. You haven't? No. I don't, they used to be like I my don't, strange addiction. I tend addiction. not to watch those shows. People, there was someone who was eating the plastic chips from the playground. Okay. They're, but all, like, bizarre things, and I, you know, I'm not trying to make light of it, but it could be anything. You always think addiction, you think, you know, drugs, alcohol, things like right. that, but it, he literally, you know ate himself very unhealthy, you know, and chocolate was his nemesis. And it's fascinating because many of us out there, we have these things. Right. And, you know, he's talking about the difference between drawing the line in the sand versus making up rules or guidelines. Um, I asked him to give us some takeaways about even shopping and going to food stores and things like that of, of just some little things um, to come up with for yourself to maybe make one or two changes. And uh, he will tell you, Brian, about his inner... Pig. Yeah. <laughs> it is so fascinating. And you will be walking away from this episode thinking about your own inner pig squealing at That's you. right.
1: You'll also be walking away with some free gifts from Glenn. <gasps>
0: Oh my gosh! Never binge again. Dot com. Hit the big red button, and you will get a free copy of his book, which talks about the inner pig. You, I know it sounds bizarre. He says the same thing, but it's so spot on.
1: It is. It's just something to you know to communicate with. Mm-hmm. It's you know it it, it puts a it, it's a way to kind of uh, the way that when he explained it, I just I could create an animated thing thing and or an animated. Um, you know, uh, actor almost to to kind of communicate with.
0: It's an analogy, people. Yes. Just go with it. You're gonna. <laughs> he's gonna explain the whole thing, so it. we don't mess this up. But he's amazing, uh, Dr. Glenn Livingston, clinical psychologist. Find that inner pig.
1: Two fit crazy in a microphone podcast. Here we go. <laughs>
0: is Christine Conti. And I'm Brian Prendergast. And we are Two Fit Crazies. And the microphone. We are where it's at. Brian. Yes. You know where it's at today? Yes. Dr. Glenn Livingston, how are you?
2: I'm good. Excellent. Hey, is, is, isn't there a song, um, uh, Two Turntables and a Microphone? <laughs> That's,
1: yeah. Hands, yes. Hands raised. Yes. You oh. get it. Uh, You're a product of the 90s or somewhere thereabouts. Well, J- take J- it.
2: Jeff Beck, right? Or Beck mm-hmm. or
1: Re- Beck one name oh, only cool. jeff, yeah jeff Beck yeah. is cool. the uh, the guitarist not him
0: and actually the song was i I want to say it was even like the 70s was there was like an original yeah. from then yeah no, oh, um
2: dude I'm too old
0: is no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah I don't and I don't remember who sings it I need to figure that out but yeah we're uh you know we're we're where it's at is because podcasting is where it's at these days and um you know our listeners around the world need to know uh where it's at and we get all the great information and great guests and amazing stories out to them around the world so we are super excited now you are in fort lauderdale florida correct
2: yeah, i moved just north of there I, I bought a place on the beach in pompano but just half hour north
1: nice not too bad how's the weather today
2: oh it's beautiful i'm sitting looking at the people jet skiing and paddle boarding and surfing it's great
0: beautiful oh <laughs> <sighs> I'm just imagining in my mind. I'm sorry, I had to go there for a minute. It's
2: the best move I ever made. It's the best place I ever lived. So, it takes my breath away every time I walk into the living room. I'm really happy here.
0: So let's let's talk about where you came from and and what's going on because our podcast guests do not just fall onto our show. So, you you piqued my interest with um what you do and and who you work with. So. Dr. Glenn Livingston, doctor of what? And what do you do? Uh,
2: These days I help people to stop overeating, Um, but I have had a long and varied career. I imagine you spat out a bunch of spaghetti in the beginning that people heard. Um, And I prefer you call me Glenn, by the way. It just (laughs) goes a little smoother. Uh, I, I come from a family of 17 psychologists, so my PhD is in clinical psychology, And the standing joke is that if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. Um, And that's all I ever wanted to do. When I was four years old, my dad was on the radio. and My mom called me into the living room to hear him. And I said, why is daddy on the radio? She said, because he's a psychologist. And I said, what's that? And she said, he makes people happy when they're sad. I said, why is he on the radio? Because he wants to make more people happy when they're sad. And I said, I want to do that. And that's all I ever wanted to do. And um, it's a little more complicated than that. But, um, but now, now that's what I do. It's rarely um, a
1: straight line from that point to the next.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what I think the most important thing for people to know is that I, I'm not just a doctor who decided to work in weight loss. I'm, I'm a formerly obese person. I'm a former serious binge eater. Um, I was about 280 pounds and the doctors were telling me I was likely to die of a heart attack, which there are people in my family who have done. As a matter of fact, every man has had one in my family on my mom's side. And um, except for me, except for me. And when I was about 17 years old, I figured out, but because I'm 6'4 and moderately muscular, if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat anything I wanted to. I mean, you know, boxes of muffins and whole pizzas or two and, you know, going to the deli and emptying the tray into my mouth and whatever you could imagine. And if you, you know, if you stop by seven uh, 11 and they were out of pop tarts or pizza, it's probably cause I was there before you. Um, and that, that worked for me. It wasn't really a problem. Um, it's called exercise bulimia these days. You don't throw up, but you purge by exercising. Um, but it worked for me. I, I felt like it was a superpower to quote Doug Graham and, I, you know, was 17 and thin and involved with girls and food and going to the bathroom a lot, which is not what a lot of people talk about when they overeat, but I did. Uh, Until I was about 23, 24 years old. And I was married and I was commuting two hours a day in both directions to see patients and go to graduate school. And I was helping my wife at the time ex-wife now run the business and sometimes she actually wanted to talk to me and um you know i had patients that i was seeing it, w- it was crazy and i i could barely find time to work out for a half hour a week and i was getting a little older and my metabolism was slowing down and so i started to get fat because i found that the food had taken on a life of its own i'd be sitting and working with suicidal patients and i'd be thinking about you know when can i get my next pizza and that, that really bothered me um, because, like I said, I always wanted to be a really good psychologist. And if you know anything about psychology, it's, it's not really an intellectual pursuit, at least not clinical psychology. It's something, it's more like lending people your soul. You, you, you've got to be 100% present. You have to have your wits about you. You have to be able to concentrate and, you know, absorb their emotions and be, you, you really got to be in it. You, you got to be there with them. And thankfully, I never lost anybody. And thankfully, you know, I also work with a lot of couples after an affair. And I, you know, I think I have hundreds of them. Only two of them ever got divorced. Um, but I wasn't whole. I wasn't happy. And I felt like the food obsession was getting worse. Um, I got fatter and fatter until I was – um one point in in my mid-30s, I think I was about 280 pounds. I stopped weighing myself at 257, but I know I got a lot fatter. And um, being a psychologist from a family of so many psychologists, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I figured there must be a hole in my heart. And that's why I'm trying to figure out the hole in my stomach. That's why I'm trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And if I could fix the psychology about it, then fill that hole in my heart, then this would all stop. And I went to psychologists and psychiatrists and nutritionists and Overeaters Anonymous and I took medication and I had some spiritual pursuits and it, it made me a very soulful person. I learned an awful lot about myself and sometimes I'd get thin for a little while, but I'd always wind up getting fatter and more obsessed. And um, there were three things that eventually flipped the paradigm for me where I realized that it wasn't so much having to heal my inner wounded child that was going to get me better. Although I think that's a valuable thing to do. I think that's a soulful thing to do. It, it was more like assuming I was the alpha wolf in my own body and that these cravings, these drives were, uh, were challengers to the, to the leadership. Um, kind of the same way that, um, you know, your bladder might challenge you for dominance when it really has to go. Like if I really had to pee right now, I would still go through the interview because I I don't really have to pee. But if I did, (laughs) (laughs) I I, I would assert dominance and I would say, look, you know, it'll be over at 3.30. You'll be fine. Just, just bear with it. Um, And when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? It, It growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. So there were three things that really flipped the paradigm for me. Um, and I wasn't going to talk about this publicly. It, it's um, wh- One of them was neurology. I started to read more about the neurology of cravings and impulses and impulse control. And the interesting thing I found was that the part of the brain that's responding to food addiction, or drug addiction for that matter, or alcohol – it, it doesn't know love. It's the reptilian brain. It's the part that's responsible for emergencies. And it looks at things in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? So it's like, it's like a college drinking game or yeah, something. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It doesn't know love. Love, What we think of as love is more from the um, you know, a little bit from the limbic brain, but really more from our conceptions of who we want to be and who we are in relationship to our tribe and who we are in relationship to the, you know, family and and then, you know, the top of the brain, which whether you believe in evolution or creationism, it it's the way that it is. It's just kind of lined up like this. Uh, I'm bastardizing it, and a neurologist would take me to task a little bit. But but basically, you know, the the neocortex, the most recently evolved part of the brain, says, um, you know, before you eat made or kill that thing, what impact is this going to have on your long term goals and your tribe and your family and your loved ones. And, and so that made me realize that, okay, this is more of an alpha wolf controlling the the challenger. And then I, I don't have kids and I don't, I never commuted. My, my ex-wife traveled for business. So, you know, five days a week, we just wasn't feasible to have children. And, um, I developed a dual career. So in addition to my clinical practice, I consulted for big food and big pharma. I'm kind of embarrassed that I did. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war. Um, But I was really good, and I had all these psychological protocols to figure out what was motivating people to buy. And um, I saw things while I was doing that, just as it was really getting into vogue. It's really much worse now. But they were engineering all these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And the purpose of it was to hit our bliss points in the lizard brain Without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Now they wouldn't. They don't have that in writing anywhere. They wouldn't say that exactly. But, um, but that's what they were doing, right? And the result is addiction. The result is that your survival drive winds up getting hijacked, and um, you know you get obsessed about bags and boxes and containers. But every time you're looking for love with the bottom of a box or bag or a box or container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank. And I said, well, this isn't. External force that has nothing to do with whether my mama loved me enough, or you know, the fact that I'm in a bad marriage, or I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy, or anything like that. This is not the hole in my heart. This is something that everybody contends with in our society. And then there's the advertising industry. And I, gosh, I remember this conversation with a, a guy who was a VP at a major food bar manufacturer that was very successful. And I asked them, I pulled them aside and asked them what their most profitable insight was. And he he kind of bows his head and he says, I'm ashamed of this, Glenn, but the truth is the most profitable insight was to take the vitamins out of the bar. And we put the money into the packaging instead. Because the vitamins were expensive and they were making making the bar taste bad. So we put the money into the packaging to make it look like it was healthy instead. So they kept these shiny, vibrant colors and a diversity of colors. And in nature, that would signal a diversity of nutrients. Um, you know, think of a salad with crisp green lettuce and purple cabbage and red tomatoes and, you know, blueberries and carrots and just think of the diversity of colors. That The reason that's appealing to us, as a matter of fact, a good part of the reason that color appeals to us in the first place is because it signals a diversity of nutrients. And they're using that. Those, they're pressing those evolutionary buttons, um, but they're removing what's supposed to be behind them. And the result is this constant wanting or craving that seems like it doesn't go away. And, 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 and there, when you combine that with the overstimulation of the taste buds in the pleasure center, um, it, it causes what's called downregulation of our pleasure center. So it's kind of like if you're, uh, if you sleep underneath the subway like I did in graduate school, the first year uh, if you sleep underneath the subway you can't sleep the first week or two after a month you can't hear it right it's because your system is down regulated well if you have a chocolate bar every day you know after a month apples don't taste sweet anymore mm-hmm. as a matter of fact the chocolate doesn't taste quite as sweet anymore because your system's down regulated thankfully it upregulates when you get a lot of that stuff out of your system uh, and fairly quickly it's People feel like they're going to be tortured forever. So I said, these are very powerful external forces having nothing to do with love or neglect or holes in my heart. Um, And and then there are, you know, five to 7,000 messages beamed at us every year over the internet and the other waves that are about food. And maybe a half dozen of them are about eating more whole fruits and vegetables. So it's, it's just the perfect storm for creating food addiction. The the last thing that happened that really flipped the paradigm for me was I I was getting a lot of money to do these big studies. And so just as the clicks on the internet were becoming purchasable, and they were very cheap back then, this is like the late 90s, I set up a study where I asked people about life satisfaction and stress levels in different areas of their life. And I asked them what foods they had trouble stopping to stop eating once they started? What do they overdo? And I had a whole list of foods and a whole list of life areas and I found three really important things. Well, I thought they were important at the time. One was that people who struggled with chocolate like I did. My binges always started with chocolate. They'd progressed to pizza and Pop-Tarts and muffins and everything, but they always started with chocolate. People who struggled with chocolate, they tended to be um, lonely or brokenhearted or a little depressed. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things like, you know, pretzels or chips or well, mostly pretzels and chips, they, they tended to be more stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy, starchy things like bread or bagels or even pasta and pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought that was fascinating. And I thought, you know, now now I have a clue as to where the problem might be. And I had this conversation with my mom, who was also a therapist, remember, and I figured before I really dig into this I just want to see if she remembers anything from my childhood is is this really a childhood thing and she almost hung her head in shame when I asked her she says I'm so sorry Glenn and I said mom what is it whatever it is it's you know 40 years ago I don't care it's I, I totally forgive you I love you what I'm just trying to figure this out she said I'm so sorry because when you were 1 year old 1965 they were talking about sending your dad to Vietnam, even though we had a kid. And so we were trying to have another kid, but your dad was a captain in the army and um, we were really scared. You know, I thought I was going to wind up being an army widow with maybe two small kids. And I was really scared. And at the same time, my dad, your grandfather had just gotten out of jail and I didn't know he was guilty in doing these things, but he really was. And I was devastated because he was my whole life. I adored him my whole life. And as a consequence, half the time when you came running to me for food, or for cuddles, or for love, or just to play, I didn't have it. I was sitting, staring at the wall, and um, and I was depressed and anxious. And I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor, and I'd say, "Honey, go get your Bosco," and you'd go running over to the to the refrigerator, and you'd open it up, and you'd. Suck on the cover and you suck on the Bosco and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. Mm -hmm. And see, if this were a movie, then at this point, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and we'd forgive each other. And I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. Like if my theory was right Mm -hmm. that I have a hole in my heart, that should have done it. Um, You know, we did have a hug and a kind of metaphorical cry and it was a good conversation to have. I learned a lot about her. I was able to forgive myself. I felt softer towards myself, like some of the self-hatred subsided. But I actually started eating worse, particularly with chocolate. I actually started having more chocolate. And it's because there was this crazy voice inside of me that that went something like this. It says, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love of your life and get out of this marriage – you're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee! Let's go get some more right now. So there was this voice of justification, and so what I started to do was I, I said, um, "Okay." So the relationship between emotional uh, between emotional upset and overeating isn't quite as simple as I thought. It's it's more like there's a big fire, but if it's in a fireplace in the living room and the fireplace is really good and it's well contained. That becomes the center of hearth and home. It doesn't matter. You know, the fire could be big. It could be little. As long as the ashes can't get out, people will gather around it. It's a source of energy. It's a um, place where you make memories. They'll tell stories and you know, share good times and bad times. It'll become a place to make memories. But if you have a hole in that fireplace, particularly if there was something poking holes in the fireplace, then even one ash can get out and burn down the house. And started to ask myself, what could be poking holes in that fireplace? And I realized it was that voice of justification. Um, and this part is kind of embarrassing. I, I read some alternative addiction treatment literature by Jack Trimpey, who works mostly with drugs and alcohol, which is a black and white addiction. You can quit it entirely with food. You got to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block a couple of times a day. But I, I, I saw that... Um, there was this voice of justification poking holes in the fireplace and I said to myself, okay, I'm going to call that inner voice my inner pig. I, I sometimes wish I chose a different metaphor because I had no idea I was going to wind up doing this publicly. This is just a private thing. I said, I'm going to call this my inner pig and or my pig for short. And I'm going to draw really clear, bright lines in the sand so that I, I know what healthy food behavior is and isn't. So for example... I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have it on Saturday and Sunday. And then if I heard a voice in my head, which would justify in any way eating some chocolate on a Wednesday, like, oh, you know, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. It's not going to make a difference. You can just start tomorrow. Or, you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, and that grows on a plant, so it's really a vegetable. If I heard that voice in my head, I would say, that's my pig squealing. For slop. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous and crude as that sounds for a sophisticated psychologist like me, um, I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do is the thing that started to wake me up. It wasn't a miracle. I can't tell you that I was better the next day. But it would give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and remember why I made the rule in the first place. What I was trying to accomplish, why I was trying to become a person who didn't have chocolate during the week, and I started to realize I could make—I was in control. I didn't feel powerless. Um, I didn't feel like there was some serious force inside of me. I didn't feel like there was a hole in my heart. I just felt like I was making choices for, you know, one type of pleasure versus another. And I started to look at what the authentic bodily need might be. So if I was craving chocolate, I usually wanted some energy of some sort and I experimented with these different smoothies and I freshly landed on kale and bananas. If I had kale juice and bananas or even the whole kale leaf and bananas, um, I wouldn't get high in the way that chocolate made me high. I would, um, I would just be content. The craving would go away like someone scratched an itch. And slowly but surely, I realized that I was making the rules, so it was silly to make any other choice besides comply with them because I could change them if I wanted to. Um, so I just I kept the journal for eight years saying, you know, this is what my pig says. This is why it's wrong. Uh, for example, the idea that you can start tomorrow is that it's just as easy to start tomorrow. That's wrong because by the principle of neuroplasticity, what fires together, wires together, which means if you have a craving and you indulge that craving – that craving is going to be stronger tomorrow, so if you're in a hole, stop digging. Right? It's it's harder to start tomorrow than today. the The uh, deal is to use the present moment to be healthy. That's the best choice you can make. So I kept these journals, and I would refute what the pig was saying and point out the false logic it was using, and it gave me more and more strength. And over the course of those eight years or so, I got, um, you know, I got thin, and it became almost effortless after a while, and the cravings were gone, mostly. 99% they were gone. And um, then as I was getting divorced in 2015, I was a minor part of a publishing company. I've been in business and psychology my whole life, so I had a whole bunch of different deals. And the CEO of that company said to me, hey, Glenn, do you think you could write a book because we need to attract better authors who really believe we know what we're doing. And we, we, we need to put, you know, a bunch of money into some marketing experiments and we prove that we know what we're doing. And so I said, well, I've got this journal about me versus my pig. Do you think that's a book? And he said, that's absolutely a book. And I took a month and I edited it into a book and I sent it to him. Two weeks later, he calls me back and he says, Glenn, don't know a pig slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeded to lose hundred pounds over the course of the next couple of years. Wow. Um, and that's the story. We, we published it and, you know, yeah, we both know what we're doing. We've been in marketing our whole lives, but we had no idea how it was going to take off. And we've got almost a million readers and we have all this whole coaching network. And I, I go around telling people, I'm a psychologist with a pig inside me and you might have one inside you too. That's, um, that's what I do now.
0: That is one hell of a story, <laughs> Glenn. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. And and that's what makes you so effective and so empathetic with everybody. And, you know, the people we talk to, those that, you know, really get out there and really make an impact, they've been through something. They know how it feels. They know how hard it is to say, you know, how do you shut up that pig? I love your analogy as a former English teacher and – and uh <laughs> lover of literature (laughs) and and analogies. I I think it's such a perfect way to empower yourself and to tell people it's such an easy, relatable thing as opposed to explaining, well, this is the theory of neuroplasticity and this is how your body (laughs) rewires itself. Right, right, right. And, you know, same thing, you know, with us. We consider ourselves, although we are not psychologists, uh, disclaimer, fitness psychologists. Really, that's who we are. It's That's great that, you know, you want to you know, lose weight, but what's behind it? Why? You know, what is the reason you want to do this? Is it getting healthy? Is it someone who comes to us that doesn't appear to be overweight? What's going on?
1: What's your pig?
0: Right. I can't wait to say that to somebody.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Some people take offense at the word pig. um, And you don't have to use it. You can call it a food monster. You could call it um, your junkyard dog or people come up with their own names for it. The, the key is that you don't think of it as a part of yourself. It's more like a thing inside of you. And by definition, it's sociopathic. By definition, mm-hmm. you know, pig squeal is any thought feeling, image or impulse that suggests that you're going to break your rule. Um, so it only wants to break your rule, and it's not because of your inner wound or that you need comfort or love. I always ask people who say they, you know, they eat chocolate for comfort I said, "Well, when you go to the dentist, does the dentist say they're out of Novocaine and they'd like to inject you with some chocolate instead?
1: <laughs> um,
2: because there's something else going on. P- people eat chocolate to get high. It's um, it's an unnatural. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I I'm very diet agnostic. I help people with all sorts of diets, and you know, I try to balance freedom with um, control and safety. But um, you know, don't don't fool yourself into thinking that it's comfort because that." that will just make your pig exaggerate your uncomfortable emotions so that it gets some comfort food. There's the element of um, an unnaturally concentrated source of pleasure in the form of starch or salt or fat or oil or excitotoxins. And and yes, it's important to know why you want to do this. And I, I tell people, you know, like, like I will never have chocolate again, it feels a little bit like there's a Nazi policeman over your shoulders all the time and you can do it. You know, you can draw a clear line and you can, you can ignore the pig and you can, you can do it. But if you ask someone, could you never have chocolate again? They'll usually say, no, that's too much. If you ask them, could you become a person who doesn't have chocolate? They'll say, maybe, maybe I could do that. Because we're, we're used to, adopting character traits with unwritten rules all the time. Like if you, if you walk into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress hasn't seen her tip yet, and she says, I'll be right back and I'll just have to get, get you some menus, and there's no video camera and no window and nobody's up front that would see you take it, virtually nobody would take that $20 bill that I talked to. And I ask them why, they'll say, well, I'm not a thief. You know, I, I'm just not that kind of person. She worked hard for her money, and um, I'm going to leave it there and even let her know that it's there. And so we actually do that kind of thing all the time because of the kind of people that we want to be. Um, and if if you know the kind of person you want to be and you know what the benefits of being that kind of person would be, like concrete physical benefits of losing weight and feeling great and having more energy and the mental benefits of being less obsessed with food and being present for relationships and being able to roll roll around the floor with your kids or grandkids, it's... I mean that's there, but if if you really really have a vision of the kind of person you're trying to become, it's a lot easier to to let the chocolate go. Um, so I'm, I could say a lot more about that if you want to, but I. I'm no, aware I, that I'm talking a lot. And no, I. Have I to give you guys a chance. We're
1: we're fascinated by this, so uh, you know, don't don't take our uh, silence in any other way other than we're listening. Um, my notes, my note-taking <laughs> skills are stellar. What I what I want to say. I say is that is that, you know you're an, you're an incredibly in-tune person, right? Part of that is your profession, your education, and you even mentioned your upbringing and your you know everything about you is as uh, you know is someone who is going to go inside to figure out why um, so many people that we come across. Don't look there at all. Um, don't understand that there's may perhaps even an issue. You know, if they step on a scale, then maybe they see that. But they don't, um, uh, you know, relate to the fact that they have an issue with chocolate or whatever it may be. Um, that they're, you know, that there's a problem there, so to speak. Um, you know so how do you, how do you look at it like that like you 're somebody who's always looking for that angle you 're looking for that hole that hole in your heart or whatever in your stomach or whatever it may be um, but so many people are just drifting through, and those people there there's more of them out there that have these health issues um weight or what otherwise that um you know what what are your thoughts on that
2: I, I work with people where they are so so um most people are aware that they'd like to lose some weight. Most people are aware that they eat beyond their own best judgment. Um, and I'll ask them, so let's let's stick with the chocolate example. And I will ask them, well, what role do you want chocolate to play in your life? I know that, you know, this inner part of you that feels out of control says that you can't really change it. But what if you could? Or what if you could have it play any role you want to in your life, anything from – having it very specifically on the weekends or, you know, two ounces at night after dinner or what, whatever you, whatever it is you want to do with it to not having it at all um, or to not, or to just eating as much as you want, what, what role do you really want it to play? And people can relate to that. And then I'll say, well, if you did that, um, let's say you could do it for a whole year, what would happen? Like imagine you wake up a year from now, you look yourself in the mirror and I give you a call and you say, Glenn, you know what? I can't believe it. I did it. I had chocolate just two ounces every night for a year. Um, what would be different? What would you see in the mirror? How, how would it feel to be you differently than how it feels to be you now? And most people will start with the physical and they'll say, well, my face is thinner and, you know, my skin is um, is clearer. And I, I've lost a bunch of weight because, you know, by getting chocolate under control, it made me want to follow with some other disciplines. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I look like I've, um, got a little more energy. I look happier. And then I'll say, well, why are those things important? What, why is it important to have more energy? What would you do with it? And they'll say, well, you know, my wife keeps asking me to go for a hike on the weekend and I've been putting it off because it's just too hard for me. But now I can go for a hike with the family on the weekend and I can make some memories with the kids. Oh yeah, well, how old are your kids? You know, what are their names? And I'll just ask them very specific, concrete questions um, about, you know, this vision that they have about what would happen if they had more energy and lost weight. And I don't need them to tell me anything deep about what caused it or um, i don't need them to have philosophical reasons for doing what they're doing i don't need them to be a deep thinker i just need to know what they want and as you ask people those questions you can paint a picture of the person that they're trying to become they don't have to conceptualize it like that you just have to paint the picture so that that's how i work with the masses that's why i'm um, You know, I I mean, the vast majority of people swim in the shallow end of the pool, and that's okay. Sometimes I think, you know, they always say PhD means piled higher and deeper, and sometimes I think they're right. (laughs) Sometimes I think I spent too much time in the library and (laughs) reading books and formulating theories in my ivory tower. Um, So, so, you know, we just... You you don't have to go deep with this stuff to have tremendous benefits. Um, And you can still portray the kind of person that you're trying to become without asking people very deep questions. Now, the other thing is uh, the big, we call that the big why, the, you know, the the future that awaits you if you make the changes that you have been thinking about making. But what's even more powerful, believe it or not, even though it's unpleasant, is the big why not. And if you remember the play or movie Scrooged, Right. Um, mm-hmm. there's the ghost of Christmas future and the ghost of Christmas future Scrooge sees Ebenezer of Scrooge sees what's waiting for him in 10, 20, 30 years if he just keeps counting his money and not relating to people and it, he doesn't change his ways and it turns out when we look at the actual research, and we do our own studies because we've had you know like about a thousand clients now um, the big why makes a difference seeing your positive future and the kind of person you want to be, that makes a difference. What makes an even bigger difference is seeing what's waiting for you if you don't change. Because our pigs will typically tell us that life will be just the same. You could start this tomorrow or next month or next year or even in five years. But the truth is if you're not getting better, you're getting worse, especially with food, anything that's um, unnaturally pleasurable. And we, we didn't have chocolate bars and chips and you know, pasta and pizza and all these bags and boxes and containers. We didn't have those on the savannah when we were in in our youth as a species. So all these things that are unnaturally pleasurable, if you kept on abusing them, everybody makes their own definition of what abuse is, but if you kept on abusing them, what would happen? And we have even more success with people who have a parent with diabetes or who had a heart attack or a stroke and they you know, they maybe they're pre-diabetic or diabetic themselves and they have all these warning signs and they know what, you know, they know what's ahead in life. And it's, it's usually not waking up dead one morning. 80% of the people who get these conditions, their quality of life suffers, but they continue to live. So there are decades of suffering that most people experience and they don't want to look at that or think about that. They want to think, well, who cares? I'll just wake up dead one morning. But it doesn't happen like that for the vast majority of people. And if you can really look at that ghost of Christmas future, it becomes like a hungry bear chasing you. And we find that people who have that, in addition to the thing they're running towards, they've got the carrot and the stick, they do even better. Carrots and sticks and really, really clear lines so you're not having to make ambiguous food decisions all day long because that wears down your willpower.
0: I want to just reiterate to our listeners right now that the fact that you're coming out here and saying chocolate is what it is, it seems like such an innocent, wonderful thing. People have these, you know, oh, chocolate as a reward, chocolate as a holiday. And, you know, again, you're you're talking about chocolate. (laughs) This could be anything to anyone and I love the fact that you know you say this because you know you could go on about obviously drugs and alcohol and you know certain behaviors but this which I think a lot of people out there have addictions to things that they they kind of trivialize because they don't you know society doesn't deem it as an evil and I think that's important to to remember
2: our society seems to have a tacit agreement to slowly kill ourselves with food. Mm-hmm. If you look at the level of sugar and flour and um, alcohol and, and sodium, if you look at the level that's in the standard American diet. I mean, it's terrifying. It's, it's criminal. Terrifying. Yeah, it's criminal. And that people think that that's okay. And we all joke it off and say, well, anything in moderation. um, I mean, that's why, you know, obesity rates are 80% of 80% higher than what they were a couple of decades ago and cardiovascular problems and cancer. There are all these diet reversible conditions. We don't have to suffer the way we do in the second half of our life. And, um, you know, most people, you know, a lot of people lose body parts as they get older because of these things. Right. And you don't have to. It's, um, there are a lot of changes you could make. I help people make them very slowly. By the way, I don't. I don't, um, I don't say, "Well, look, you have to eat sandpaper and you know dirt and rocks until you're the way you want to be." <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's actually a problem when people go into famine mode; they don't eat enough and they try to diet too hard. You you wind up rebounding back the other way. But um, we help people start slowly with one simple rule. And it's funny if you ask people if there were just one thing that you did. If you just made one rule; it wouldn't feel too onerous, so you can and would do it. But you know you could be successful, and you could draw a really clear, bright line. What would that one rule be? And people come up with all sorts of things. Like I'll always put my fork down between bites. Or I, there's this truck driver who ate fast food breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, but he decided he wouldn't go back for seconds, and he lost 150 pounds. Um, you know, they're, they're, I'll never eat in front of a TV screen again. Or um, you know, I will only ever have pretzels at a major league baseball park, right? <laughs> there are, they, come, <laughs> they come up with all sorts of things, but when you have a rule, see, one of the major reasons this works is because there's a mythology in our culture that says that guidelines are better than rules. Just try to eat, eat well 90% of the time and indulge yourself 10% of the time, which is a good idea, Except that it puts you in the situation of asking yourself, is this part of the 90% or the 10% all the time? Every time you're in front of a uh, a chocolate bar in Starbucks, you have to ask yourself, should I or shouldn't I? And willpower is very related to the decisions that you make. The more decisions you make, the less willpower you have. That's why people make worse decisions at night than in the morning. Um, And... So if you make really clear, crystal clear rules with very bright lines, then you're um, not relying on willpower. So sometimes people who are overeating in restaurants, for example, I'll say, "Well, uh, what if you had a rule that said, um, you know, I can have one dish, one main dish, and one dessert of whatever I want, and that's it. You know, you won't have the bread or something. Let's, or, or whatever it is for them. I'll have them outline exactly what they're going to do." I, I can have dessert twice per calendar week at a restaurant if I'm with someone I love. Um, And now you go into the restaurant, which is completely designed to seduce your pig, by the way. (laughs) Everything from the menu to the lighting to the smells to the way that the waiters are trained to present the dessert tray and describe the dishes and to the social forces. It's all designed to overwhelm your best judgment. But if you've decided beforehand and you know exactly what you're going to do, even to the point of sometimes – looking at the menu online and even some people like to enter it into one of those trackers, um, before they go to the restaurant, then you don't have all these willpower fatiguing decisions to make in front of you. And you just go in and you execute the plan. It's like, there's a, you know, a general Glenn and a private Glenn, right? A guy who comes up with the strategy and the guys who does the execution. And if I go to the restaurant, I'm just executing. I'm not making decisions there. Um, and, and so, you know these these one simple rules, this very clear bright line. All of a sudden, it takes decisions out of the equation, and it takes less mental energy to eat well. And then people get excited; they start to have a little bit of um, a little success. They don't feel powerless and confused, and they feel hopeful. And so then they take on another rule. And you know it's important not to get too restrictive. There, there, you have to make sure that you're getting enough calories and nutrients, and I always tell people there are some rules you can't make. Like if I said I will never pee again, my bladder would <laughs> tell me otherwise in six to twelve hours. Um, and similarly, if you construct rules that overly restrict your calories or nutrition, your body will tell you otherwise before you know it. Um, but within reason, you can really eliminate your decisions, and um, you know, look at all those dangerous. I call. I call them food intersections because it's it's like you're a city planner designing where the red lights go and where the where you don't need any traffic control at all, where the stop signs go. Um, you know and you can create a situation for yourself where food feels as free and easy as driving around a city does. You just naturally stop at the red lights, um, you know you go with the green lights and you you have this general awareness, but you can listen to music or talk on the phone. Um, hands-free Yeah, you can do that so that, that's what i do i'm i'm,
1: <laughs> I'm fascinated by um and, and you know even prior to this conversation with um some of the things that you mentioned and the work you did with the food industry um things like placement on shelves you mentioned the uh you know the presentation at a restaurant and all those things
0: oh the marketing is uh, just yeah. the and, propaganda well, is insanity
1: and, like on a, on a Psychological level, you know, how, how bound are we to this stuff, and how, and how I mean, we're we're now somewhat aware of it, and obviously, you know, when you mentioned it, wasn't like I said the first time I'd ever heard of anything like this. But how bad is it? What you know, we're we're, we're fighting an uphill battle, and, um in many ways, um, bad. Yeah, it's, it's bad. bad. It's really <laughs> it's, bad.
2: It's bad, but there's a, but this is a simple defense. It requires a little work. Henry Ford said. Thinking is the hardest work there is. That's why hardly anybody does it. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't be sheeple. We, we can't just go along with the idea that advertising doesn't affect you. If, uh, advertising affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you, because then your sales defenses are down. Um, it requires some work to think through who you want to be with food, what role you want these dangerous, I don't want to say dangerous, but the foods that have been out of control in your life, what role do you really want them to play? There are some people for whom uh, some variation of sugar, salt, fat, starch, and oil are, are things they would do better having none of than any. Um, for me personally, for example, I, I, I haven't had chocolate in years. I just I tried six ways to Sunday to make a rule that would let me have it sometimes. And my sister says she takes two little squares and she says I'm going to put the best in my purse for later. And I don't I don't know how she does that because <laughs> I'm someone who can't have any at all, or I just I can't stop thinking about it. Um, but but you can, you can do the work of thinking through all of the triggers and asking yourself the question of what would be ideal. What would be ideal if I could follow it? Then draw the line in the sand and, you know, watch yourself try to break it. Watch your pig try to get you to break it. And then every time the pig tries to get you to break it, ask it why. And it'll present you with a half a truth and a bigger lie. You know, you failed a thousand times before. You can't follow any rule or any diet. Therefore, you're going to fail in the future, so you might as well just binge now. Well, first of all, the pig doesn't have a time machine any better than you do, so we can't see what's going to happen in the future any more than you can. So all, all, all it can decide about is really right now, and that's what it's trying to do anyway is get you to binge now. Se- secondly... Um, if you're on a highway for a thousand miles and you don't take the exit, that has absolutely no bearing on your ability to take the next one. You know, if you're like Wayne Dyer says, if you're on a boat for a mile and you have a mile long straight wig behind you, you can still turn the wheel, but your pig would have you think otherwise. And if 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 everything worthwhile had to be accomplished in the first shot, then we wouldn't have anything worthwhile in our society, right? Like, would you say to your kid, you know, you... You've tried to walk for you know two or three days now. You keep falling down. You might as well just give up and keep crawling. We don't say that. We know that there are valuable things which are part of development. That learning is part of development, and it requires a multitude of trials and failures. And you fall down seven times and you get up eight. So you know you ask your you ask your pig why should you break this rule? And you think about um, and obviously we help people to do this, but you you think about where the false logic is and you disempower it and you do that enough times. And, and the pig will say, well, no matter how many times you do it, it's going to find something else to binge on. But there are only a limited number of things you can binge on. It's you know basically those categories I keep talking about sugar, salt, fat, oil, starch. Um, once you figure out what the right rules are for those areas, it's it gets pretty hard for the pig to binge. So you can, you can beat this thing. And it, it just requires a bunch of front-loaded work for a couple of months. Kind of like it takes so much energy for an airplane to get off the ground, but that once it's at cruising altitude, it really doesn't take much fuel at all to get to its destination. This thing, because of the perfect storm of the big food industry and the big advertising industry, and we, we didn't even talk about the big addiction treatment industry, which says you can't quit and that what I'm saying is impossible and you could only abstain one day at a time and there are irresistible forces against which no human can resist. It it's um it's crazy. It's it's a perfect storm to set us all up for um, overeating, especially in the pandemic. Right? Especially with our amygdala's overdrive and fear in the pandemic. It's it's crazy. So Mm-hmm. Let yeah, me, you can be at this. You can be at this
0: let me ask you this just for a lot of our <laughs> listeners. This is, I actually, a couple things I'll tell you in a minute, but um, I used to teach um, the psychology of supermarkets. It was some story, some short story I used to teach every year, and we would get into the marketing, and they would say, Well, what is, it, what is marketing and what does it do? And, and I would say, Well, there's a psychology when you walk into a supermarket. And you know, they're like, Well, what do you mean? I'm like, Well, what are the first things that you see? when you walk in, you know, and it's, what is it? It's the sale items. It's your cookies. It's your potato chips. It's your playing right into what you're talking about, your starches, your sweets, your, your, um, sugar or your, uh, salt. And I said, well then take a look at where things are placed. Look at what's popping. Look at, is it five for, you know, a dollar? Is it, you know, that the red apples next to something to draw your eyes in, and oh everything is to your right cuz most people are right-handed could you what and again this is something a lot of people struggle with when you go food shop and you have a list but you're you know there's there's that unrealistic or you know there's that pull um, and again i'm just using a supermarket as an example it could be food in front of you it could be food on your plate what is one maybe one go-to strategy that you really think works to shut up that pig?
2: Um, can I give you two?
0: You can give me more than
2: two. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. there are two things that work well in combination. One um, is to think through beforehand what the obstacle is going to be. So most people repeatedly go to the same place, you know, whether it's a particular bag of chips or you know, cinnamon raisin bread or whatever it is. Think of that strategy and ask, um, ask your pig, make sure that you have a rule that would prevent you from buying it or eating it, right? Uh, if, if you don't want to have it in the house, then you need to have a rule that you've committed to beforehand so that you know what the right decision is. So there's no ambiguity about, you know, which side of the line you would be on. And then ask your pig for its best reason for you to break that rule. And, Try to disempower the logic beforehand. The other thing is that if you stay on the edges and don't go into the middle of a the supermarket, there are usually are healthier foods on the edges. But that's only something you want to do in the beginning um, because eventually you want the control to be internal. So, so a lot of people will say, Hey, I have my family keeping the cookies in a locked jar or in a lock, you know, a lock cabinet. I said, well, that's okay in the beginning. The research suggests that avoiding stimulation in the beginning provides a cocoon in which you can develop a new habit. Somewhere between 21 and 66 days. It depends upon what research you look at. Once you've really developed that habit and you've challenged your pig's warped logic for breaking that habit, then you want to start to physically challenge the habit. You want to have a plan to eat a very satisfying meal before you go shopping. Like don't, don't go into the supermarket hungry. Get a very satisfying, nutritious meal. Um, have your next meal all planned out and ready and waiting for you when you get back. So there's no question whatsoever that you're going to be nutrified and, um, you know, and you're certainly not going to starve. Your, your pig can't say they're, they're going to find your bones by the refrigerator tomorrow. And then walk right up to that aisle, walk into the supermarket, walk right up to the aisle and say, okay, okay, pig. here's your chance. If you can give me a good reason, anything better than what you did before, maybe I'll do it. And, you know, you'll get to the point where it's it's like lifting weights. And I always tell people, you could fill a bathtub with liquid chocolate and put me in it and I wouldn't open my mouth. It's just not interesting to me. It's not tempting to me. I, I look at chocolate bars now, and they look like a big bag of chemicals. I don't really understand why I used to feel so controlled by them. Um, that took a while. But, you know, as as you develop and challenge that muscle, and it is a mental muscle, um, you know, new pathways develop, and you get stronger and stronger and stronger. So that's what I have to say. Hey, guys, I, I have to be on a call. at I- I
0: I want you to um, tell our listeners, actually, all about um, where they can find you, where they can find your book, and um, any social media and websites. Go.
2: (laughs) Well, I've got a couple of goodies for you, um, and they're all at NeverBingeAgain.com if you click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonuses. And among those are a free copy of the book, Never Binge Again. And this is at NeverBingeAgain.com in um, Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. That's the first thing. The second thing is I know this is kind of weird that, you know, Brian and Christine have this psychologist on who has a pig inside of him and maybe you do too. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I know it sounds really harsh in the abstract, but if you hear me coach some people through it, and I've recorded a half dozen sessions or so that you can listen to for free, um, you'll see it's actually a very compassionate Life giving, loving philosophy that takes people from feeling hopeless and powerless and confused about food and defeated to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic and optimistic about their ability in just one session. It's a very, very powerful method. Um, and you'll get that when you sign up for the reader bonuses. And the last thing that's not the last thing, the last really important thing you'll get is a copy of our food plan starter templates. So like I said, this is all diet agnostic. It doesn't matter whether you're keto, low carb, high carb, point counters, calorie counters, macrobiotic, vegan. It it doesn't matter. Uh, We've thought through possible sets of rules you might want to consider. We call them starter templates because if I give you a diet, your pig will say, like it's said of every other diet guru before, oh, gee, that guru's diet is no good. We'll have to find another one. But in the meantime, let's just keep on binging. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So you got to take control of your own plan and take responsibility for it. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button, and that will lead you to our podcast, our readers forum, and our social media, and all that kind of thing. Neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so very much for joining us today and really enlightening our listeners around the world about some key takeaways of... Find your pig. Shut your pig up. Make some rules. Make some guidelines. Glenn, I can't thank you enough for all of the information that you've shared with us. I've taken copious notes, and um, all of our listeners need to go and check everything out
1: and definitely read the book.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on.
1: Glenn, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. And with that said, it is Christine Conti. And I'm Brian
0: Prendigas. And we are to fit Crazy And the microphone. Are where it's at. Peace. Love that song.